a podcast for dads who love music, made by dads who love music. And now, your hosts, Josh and Joe. Hello, and welcome to Dad Rocks, the podcast about being a dad and loving music and how the two intersect in our lives. I'm Josh, and I'm here with my co-host, Joe. What's up, Josh? And our producer, Steve. Hey, guys. On this episode, we are going to talk to Dwayne Harriet, a DJ at the infamous freeform radio station WFMU and a former manager at the legendary New York City record store Other Music. But before we get to the interview, it's been a really long time since we've checked in. So let's check in and see how everyone's doing. What's going on, guys? I know we've seen each other. Like, we finally got to hang out yep. at our, uh, well, my cousin, your buddy, Graham's Celebrate Everything party. So that was great to see you guys in person and hang out. And we certainly but, celebrated uh, everything. Great to hang. Great yeah. to jam. So, Joe, what's uh, what's been going on? So, uh, the first thing I wanted to talk about, speaking of Graham, we are in a band called Tall Days, and we just released our very first vinyl of our latest album, which is called No Disguise. While we walked. dropped right before the uh, pandemic in late 2019. We had press CDs before. We have a couple other albums over the years. This August will actually be 20 years since our first gig. I can't Crazy. believe it. Crazy. Wow. And I was thinking about it earlier as I knew we were going to, you know, talk about life updates. And just thinking about when we started the band, nobody mentioned vinyl. No one I know collected records. So, of course, we never pressed records. It's really become more common in the last few years. And so uh, we just decided, let's go for it. We got a hundred made. We've sold some of those hundred. It's up on Bandcamp for anyone who wants to check it out. Let's go to our Tall Days Bandcamp and uh, there are some left for 20 bucks, but it was cool. Third Man Mastering did the mastering nice. for it. We both really happy. Yeah, it looks really nice. Really it pro. Looks good. It sounds um, good. Thanks. Um, yeah, it's, it's a yellow color. We wanted to do a, a colored version. Actually, they mastered it for vinyl when we got the album made just in case we wanted to do this. So I think it definitely made a difference. And, uh, you know, if anything, it's cool just to have up and framed on our wall, but it does sound really good. Mm -hmm. And we're kind of pumped. We're hoping to play some shows. Actually, we played at, as you mentioned, the uh, Celebrate Everything Bash. That was the first time we, we yep. played in a while. It was good to jam with uh, some of your family members and uh, some of our friends. Me included. You include, yeah. yeah. It was great. Everyone sounded great. It was a lot of fun. Good time. But uh, we are trying to play some shows. I've been emailing places, but like what I've heard on podcasts and stuff is that because of the pandemic and nobody played for a year and a half, now there's 8 million people trying to play all these clubs, the very few clubs that are left in New York City and in Brooklyn. So hopefully we'll land some gigs soon. I was explaining it to my cousin came over last week about the lack of music scene in New Jersey, in my opinion, really because there's no hub in New Jersey. We don't have... Mm -hmm. Speaking of our guest in this episode, Dwayne, he talks about a lot about Nebraska, even Omaha, especially back in the day in the early 90s, had an amazing scene, probably still has a decent 
music mm-hmm. scene. But in okay. Jersey, as Josh knows all too well, there's no mm-hmm. main area. We have there's little pockets. areas. There's little pockets, but like Asbury, Asbury Park has like mm-hmm. a, a little scene. Uh, Montclair yep. for a while had a couple of places you could play. Mm-hmm. You yep. know, New Brunswick has the, New Brunswick, the court, court, court tavern. There, yeah, like, I don't even know, know if it's open they, anymore. They, I mean, they're the only real big college town. But like, the problem is in New Jersey, you have two big cities right there. Like that's where all the, you know, between Philly and New York, there's no reason to. Whereas in a lot of other places you have one big city and then miles away as you have either college towns or other local, local towns or little cities. I think because we're dominated by, you know, especially in this area, dominated by New York City, the only real places that you can play are, are bars and the few clubs that do have live music usually aren't super you know, accessible. Um, you have to drive there. You have to drive a, a bit of a distance. You know, it's not it's not terrible, but like the coolest rock club in the area that's not in New York City that I've played at, and Joe, you've played there too. We've played a, you know a couple of gigs there together. I think is the Clash Bar in like Clifton, which is this tiny little place. It's kind of a cool place, but it's not like amazing. Well, Jersey and, had a, a legendary place. Well, yeah, they had, oh. had called Maxwell's. Had Maxwell's. Maxwell's yeah. was yeah. the place which shows you that it is possible. That's right over the river. Yeah. And it's funny, the last like four or five rock bio books I've read, I read um, Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth. I just finished uh, the Chris Cornell book, which came out, mm-hmm. I think, last year. Phenomenal book. And twice they mentioned Maxwell's in Hoboken in the Chris Cornell book. Wow. Soundgarden played Maxwell's. I'm like, whoa. Well, and well, it really the- hit me. Like, you know, he's, Soundgarden's this massive band. Like, they're just, imposing like you picture them in a huge space and i'm like they were in maxwell's but of course nirvana was there a million bands were there it was the place you had because brooklyn wasn't a scene at that time brooklyn was you know it was not even you know blip on anyone's radar so maxwell's you know was the place to play if you wanted to get into new york city Mm -hmm. if you could pack this bar in hoboken and people would come out to see you there then you could probably get you know, gigs at, at some bigger places or more well-known places in New York. And the scene changed, of course, in yeah. Hoboken too. That's why everybody moved out. And so anyway, yep. but other than that, just for parenting. Kids soccer, you got a lot of kids soccer, right? I mean, Well, I was saying, actually, soccer is chilled a little bit. It's still going, but my son's club team is on break, thankfully. He's starting to practice with the high school team. They're actually doing trainings already, seven in the morning. So I don't, I don't even get to sleep <laughs> in. He's doing that, which is nice because it keeps him going. And um, my daughter did a basketball camp for two weeks in town, which was fun. Cool. It's been so nice, though, just having both of us home. And yeah. it just mm-hmm. helps so much. We've been sharing these articles about how the, the workplace is changing. People are quitting their jobs. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to go back. I'm one of those people. I'm going to do everything I physically can, at least to not go back five days a week. But we'll see. If I get offered, yeah, yeah. I may have to. But My wife has been talking about that, too. But she's more worried about like the fact that if people stop going into the city, that pay is going to be cut because people don't have to work in the city. Then they can work remotely. Then your cost of living is not going to be as high. So she's They're gonna start justifying yeah. cuts. Yeah. You got to roll with the punches and, you know, see where things go. Yep. So what's going uh, on with you, Josh? The last couple months have been kind of crazy. School ended kind of similar to last year. It was just not anything big, just kind of like a, you know, a whimper. My family, we went to Florida to visit my wife's grandparents. So my son's great grandparents who haven't seen my son in about a year, actually almost two years. But it was our first time flying with our son. 
And overall, he did well, but uh, he did a lot of kicking of the seat in front of him. He did watch Finding Nemo a couple times and enjoyed that. And his ears didn't bother him. So that was one thing we were worried about. You know, he just got really antsy on the plane. But, you know, it's a toddler flying first time. He's not used to it. And he, yeah. I think he did he did great. You know, I think, though, that the trip itself messed up with his sleep schedule. When he got back, he was kind of off at daycare. He was being a little more aggressive. Mm-hmm. He was having issues. But after a week or so, we got back into our routine. He, he was good. To go back even before that, I played uh, a wedding with my, my cover band. And that was kind of like my... Welcome to the new world. Re-enter the gigs. Yeah. So it's, but yeah. it's also like being in a room with 150 maskless people for the first time. Mm-hmm. This was back in early June. And it was kind of like one of those moments where it was like, okay, you know, this is what it's going to be. Real. You know, I wore my mask around people, but then took it off while I was playing. It was great to play. Like, you know, we only practiced three times. I mean, there were like six hour rehearsals, but it was so nice and fun to play and getting back into, into that mold. I haven't really played since except at Graham's party for a little bit, but. You know, in, in other things with uh, parenting, it's been crazy with my son in good and bad and, you know, amazing ways. He's His verbal skills have just exploded. He'll be turning three. The amount of words and sentences he can put together are amazing. His imagination is just exploding. He's starting to come up with his own stories, starting to come up with his own songs, like making stuff up. So Very it's really nice. cool to see. But he is, you know about to be a three-nager, so he is having some issues with control. He's always had a little bit as an only child at this, you know, at this point. Definitely the other day, you know, he wanted to use my phone, and I said no. He wanted to just go through photos, and I was like, we're not doing that. And then he just kind of had a huge meltdown. And then later that day, we were over at our neighbor's house to have a barbecue, and their son, who's a little older, kind of set him off a little bit. Um, and he just had a full on meltdown, like oh, and no. we almost left and then he eventually calmed down. But it was just one of these moments where it's like, okay, you know, he's definitely going through some stuff and we just, it's hard because Joe, you know, this having two of your own, it's, and probably still a deal with this. Um, you don't want to be that authoritative parent yeah, no. or, you know, authoritarian parent or whatever, but you also want to make sure that they're learning their lesson and they understand. Yeah, or like that, setting you know, boundaries yeah. and stuff. And it's like. This is unacceptable. His go-to move still, which he's gotten better at with the hitting, but you can see it from a mile away. When he gets wound up, he will come at you and like hit <laughs> you. And he started doing that school a little bit, which was, you know, unacceptable, of yeah. course. And we got worried about that. But he does that uh, every once in a while. And he also, if we're at the table, he'll take his plate and throw it on the floor, which I assume oh, wow. is a normal thing too. <laughs> and it's one of these things where we just have to keep setting the boundaries. We've seen a lot of progress in that and it's never going to be perfect. You know, it's uh, tough. It's tough. Cause you know, as yeah. you know, every kid is different. Every situation's different. It's always that fine line. Just like you said, do you want to be tough, lay ground rules, but the kids yeah. are tough as you know. Yeah. I mean, and it's, sometimes it's, you just have to like bounce off them and, and kind of roll with it a little bit, but. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah, I'm working at a, a day camp. I'm running a, a program, like a STEM program at a day camp. But it's like, this is the first time I've been like with a group all day, the same group all day. And we have a couple of kids who are, you know, have special needs and stuff like that. Nothing crazy, but like we've had meltdowns. We've had kids who aren't listening and just dealing with that. It's like dealing with my son, except several kids of that nature at the same time <laughs> who are older, who should know and understand but um, it's just making me really 
never want to go back into like be a regular classroom teacher ever again, because it's just like, I can't deal with the same kids every day no. for a long time. And luckily this yeah. is like, you know, very low stakes in that. I just got to keep the kids happy. They got to go home happy. Exactly. Parents aren't calling. That's all that matters. Like they're learning a little bit. They're having fun. Parents are happy. Kids are happy. Like that's it. It's just been a lot of emotions and dealing with emotions all summer so far. My son has been potty trained. I think if you guys have been listening since last fall, uh, he's been potty trained since about Columbus Day 2020. And he's had a few pee accidents, maybe one or two poop accidents in diapers early on. And for the past few months has been fine. The other morning, I, I told you guys on this on text, he woke up and I was already up uh, I was in the bathroom, and he, but he was like, I got to make a poopy. It's like, I got to go to, mm. I got to go potty. And so I, I immediately went into, into his room and he had already peed and pooped his, you know, in his pajamas. But luckily, you know, that was the, the big thing. Cat's working from home. Ironically, I'm looking forward to school starting up again soon just to get out of day camp. But, uh, you know, trying to enjoy the rest of the summer. Our guest today is Dwayne Harriet. He's someone I've wanted to talk to for a long time. I first discovered Dwayne years ago on WFMU, which is a long-running freeform radio station based in Jersey City, New Jersey, also my favorite radio station, where he hosts the Dwayne Train every Wednesday from noon to 3 p.m. I was instantly drawn to his seemingly endless knowledge of super deep soul, hip-hop, and disco tracks. I could tell that this guy knew his stuff. I listened to the Dwayne Train for many years, and then last spring, while we were all in lockdown, I watched the other music documentary, which documents the last days of one of the most beloved record stores in New York City called Other Music. And who do I see featured prominently in it? But Dwayne Harriet, who was a manager there and basically the go-to person at the store for hard-to-find music of almost any genre, no matter how obscure. Dwayne is also a dad of a young boy whom he hashtags on Instagram as Boogie Grams. He's been on our list of perfect guests for the podcast for a while, and that day has come. Dwayne, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here. <laughs> What's up, all you dads? Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time out of your vacation to talk with us. We have a lot to ask you, but let's go right to the beginning. What are your first memories of music? Uh, wow. I guess my first memory of music is, I think there was a big hi-fi at, my family's Jamaican on my father's side. And my first memory of music is staring at a 45 of a record that was playing in my Aunt Marcy's uh, apartment in Union City, New Jersey. And come to find out years later that that 45 was a recording of my cousin Kim, Kim Harriet, who was produced by my Uncle Derek Harriet. It was a song called Just Wanna Be Your Joy, which was a hit. just wanting to hear it over and over again. That's what they tell me, but my earliest memory of it is just like me kind of like staring at it and looking 
at my family members being really bemused by the fact that I was like actually into it. But then from there, I guess I was kind of obsessed with records from from a very early age. My father just revealed to me, I'm at his house right now, that because my son's here and he's obsessed. Hopefully, like, you know, like your young child is like obsessed with a, a bunch of things at an early age because it means that their brain is working right. And yeah. he, uh, totally. Yeah. And he's really into, you know, a lot of music. He's, he loves a lot of 80s music specifically, like, hmm. like all things Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson, Reby Jackson, you know, Prince, Vanity Six, all that stuff. So my father was watching him kind of go through all his like uh, video playlists on, on YouTube and he, was reminding uh, me that when I was around that age, I was trying to, I would, pre- I would pretend that I was a record player. So I would have books and I would drop them <laughs> in the middle of the floor and I would spin around and sing a song. So, so I guess <laughs> I don't remember any of that, but you know, looking at my life right now, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so my earliest yeah. memory is actually probably that of me, of music, but there's so many, there's so many, you know? Yeah. You know, you mentioned how you're, you were listening to your, your uncle or your cousin's uh, record. Yeah. And even though that was like a family member who was uh, recorded the song, were your parents uh, and, you know, I guess other relatives, big music fans in general? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, my father was never a professional musician, but he's been playing music, you know, for, for years. He's like a percussionist. He's played percussion for years. He grew up in Kingston, Jamaica. He started collecting records very early on in the early 60s when he moved to New York as a college student. He and uh, another one of his cousins, we figured out that they had a a sound system kind of pre-bass culture, which kind of exploded in New York in the early 70s. But around Mm -hmm. 1964, 65, they were there and they had a roving like sound system and it was one of the first Caribbean based sound systems in New York so they actually had like one of the earliest sort of traveling reggae sound systems in New York called the Harriet Chariot so and my uncle (laughs) Derek yeah my uncle Derek Derek Harriet was a huge star in Kingston Jamaica already with his Rocksteady records and things like that he had an apartment in New York so more than likely what they were doing, you know, like my uncle was like, he had a label called Crystal. And so he basically used my dad's sound system to basically like, you know, filter a lot of the records that were his productions and things like that through to them, yeah. you know. And so, you know, but also during that time, they were playing like a lot of, you know, he still has a lot of records from that era, which is, you know, it's interesting. A lot of Jimmy Smith and mm. Hugh Masekela and stuff like that. Records I love to this day. But, you know, he was really heavily invested in music from a very early age, you know, from like 18, 19, 20 years old. My mother grew up in the South and she came from a church background. Her father was uh, a minister. And so she grew up playing piano. And my sister is a musician. She's a professional musician. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I guess to answer your question, yes, music <laughs> on, on both ends, although they weren't necessarily like very integral. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, it was integral to our lives. And although they weren't uh, professional musicians, you know, my uncle Derek was a professional musician, you know, kind of like a reggae legend. And then I have my uncle Chester, Chester Harriet. He moved to the U.K., 
And he was considered by some to be like the black Liberace of the time. He was like a very famous oh. cabaret pianist. You know, and then also his cousin, my great uncle, uh, Joe Harriet, is like kind of like a cornerstone of British jazz music there. You know, music, especially on the on the Harriet side, professionally and professional musicians, it's like seep really, you know, really deep. But then on my mother's side, there were no quote unquote professional musicians, but everybody on that side knew how to sing, sing well, sing in the church. If they wanted to be professional, they they could have easily, but they just chose not to be. So on both sides, it was kind of like learning how to ride a bike. You learned how to play an instrument. You learned how to sing a tune or whatever. So, which it's not that unusual in specifically black families and, and Caribbean black families or black American families. Yeah. Now, I mean, you know, since your your family is so invested in the, I guess, you know, in the reggae and even rock steady scene, were your parents open to or related listening to or your family listen to other, you know, music growing up. Yeah. It feels like you had this big melting pot with everything. Did you feel like your parents were really, you know, embracing that or were they, you know, Yeah. They- I mean, it was a it was a different time because, you know, my memories of like of all of that stuff was like something that wasn't necessarily anything that was like seeped in the mainstream consciousness at all. I didn't really meet another person who wasn't connected to my family or who wasn't black, who was not into reggae music. Like, I, you know, I had a friend in junior high school named Mike, and he was the first white guy that I actually knew who was, like, actually enthusiastic about reggae music and wanting, you know, and we, which was mm-hmm. mind-blowing to me. That wasn't until I was, like, you know, nearly 15 years old. So, to be honest with you, most of the music that my mom and my dad like actively listened to and bought and purchased was gospel music, you know? Mm. So interesting. that was like the music that we listened to mostly in the household, you know? And then there's like the crossover records. Of course, you're going to listen to, you know, like Stevie Wonder was huge. So I grew up listening to lots of Stevie Wonder, lots of Marvin Gaye. Dionne Warwick was a big one, Billy Preston and things like that. But, you know, I had to dig into my dad's record collection to find things that, he wasn't actively listening to anymore, but he still had the records, you know. So I dug into the, you know, and found Sly and the Family Stone and stuff like that. Isaac Hayes. Gotcha. But most of the time when I was, you know, in the house and it was like a lot of gospel, but it was also good. Like now people aren't getting it, but like a lot totally, of, yeah. a lot of 70s gospel and early 80s gospel is pretty amazing because a lot of the people oh, who yeah. were playing on all those Stevie Wonder records were also playing on like Andre Crouch records and Walter Hawkins records. You know, it was all really good stuff.
Well, like the Staple Singers that's featured in Summer of Soul, it's just like it had yeah. that crossover appeal and people were huge fans of it. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we didn't even grow up with a lot of blues music, hmm. like, because I think in, you know, in the South, it's kind of like blues music kind of was like pervading through a lot of different forms of music. So it's like if you're listening to gospel music mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, you're listening to blues anyway. So we didn't really right. grow up with yeah. a lot of staple singer stuff because it was almost too rooted in the in the past. Like we didn't listen to like my parents were never really huge fans of Mahalia Jackson and things like that. Mm -hmm. They were more into like contemporary sort of stuff. You know, they're you know, they were it's like the same sort of thing. That was like their parents' music. So right, they were, sure. yeah. yeah, but you know, it was all incredible stuff. Mm -hmm. And you grew up in New York City, right? Early, yeah. Well, for the early part of my life. And then we moved to um, Nebraska right when I was about to like, I think fifth grade or something like that. I was in New York long enough for it to like have a very large imprint on my sure. brain. But also my parents moved here basically to work. You know, they both went to, mm, sure. they actually met in college here. My dad got an athletic scholarship to the University of Nebraska in the 60s and my mom was in college as well and then they kind of met and kind of got <laughs> radicalized and a lot it's a long story but in a lot <laughs> that's but, awesome yeah but my yeah. my dad ended up <laughs> going back to New York and then my mom met him out there and so they had an opportunity to move back to you know to Lincoln to, you know when we were at at a young age they kind of trusted the educational opportunities in this college town more than they did in the public school system in New York at the time but we didn't have any family here really we didn't have any sort of roots or whatever so we spent possibly every summer in New York since mm. I can possibly remember. We moved here and we literally were in New York every summer. So New York was like a very integral part of my life and my upbringing, you know. I spent like three months out of the year there. In some ways, I feel like it influenced my kind of, not only just the music that I was into, just like my thinking and the style and things like that. Like I wanted to go to New York and kind of figure out what was really cool. And then right. rock that and represent that in Nebraska more than whatever was going on around here. I was like, this is not. <laughs> that makes total sense. Yeah. yeah. So. It takes a little while for things to get out to the Midwest, even if it's in a college town. Uh, yeah. 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 And it wasn't anything like me trying to be necessarily cooler. It was just more that any kid probably would have, if you had access to it, mm -hmm. yeah. who wouldn't want right. I mean, it's easier now because of the internet. Everybody has access to everything. But back in those days, you know. It was all what you could find and soak in and bring back until right. until you went back the next year. So oh, definitely. Cool. I was just listening to an interview with Lenny Kravitz and he had a similar situation. He was mm -hmm. telling where he grew up, he was grew up in Brooklyn and then they moved to LA when his mom was on the TV show and then he said he would go back to Brooklyn and it would be a totally different scene yeah. where people were into. And then he'd go back to LA or in case wherever in California, Hollywood, and it was like Dogtown and Z-Boys and skateboarding, but no one on the East Coast knew about that. So, mm. yeah. And, and his mother's Caribbean as well. And a, a funny yeah. story is, is like when I was working at other music, I met a, you know, one of my closest friends, his name is Alec, who I work with at my day job quite a bit. And he had a roommate that was, because he's actually a pretty uh, famous music director now, Patrick Daughters, but he was interning with this Rolling Stone photographer named Mark Seliger. And he directed yep, like yep. a video for Lenny Kravitz for uh, Lenny Kravitz 5, I think it was. And he asked us to DJ a loft party, like a rap party at Seliger's place for yep. Lenny Kravitz. And so when wow. we were there, then 
Alec and I started playing like all of like this rare groove and funk stuff that you got really into. And then we started talking and Lenny and I, because we kind of have a similar kind of lilt. And it's like, and from what I understand, it's like there's a little bit of a, it's kind of a Caribbean-y sort of, hmm. it's kind of hard to understand, to like explain. But like most of the time, whenever I'm talking to other black people and they ask me where I'm from, they always say, well, I'm from Nebraska. And you're like, no, where are you from? And then I might say, it's, well, I have a Jamaican. They go, oh, that's what I hear. So we started talking and we actually had similar kind of stories. And then, you know, hmm. what ended up happening is we actually ended up DJing for a few of his parties at that time. You know, that was like one of my wow. first real sort of like big money DJ breaks in, in New York. But That's yeah, awesome. it's funny that you mentioned Lenny Kravitz because, you know, we actually kind of had a similar <laughs> sort of... <laughs> yeah, totally. The six degrees of separation thing is totally in effect sometimes, yeah. you know. And also, if you live in New York long enough, you'll just bump into everybody. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I also read, speaking of your time in Nebraska as a teenager, I read that you were the youngest DJ or something mm-hmm. in Nebraska. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, there was like a black radio station in Lincoln, Nebraska that was called KBMT. It was a community radio station. And this was back in the mid 80s. I had always been kind of, since uh, I was young, I was like obsessed with records and getting music. So in my young head, I'm thinking, well, if I really want to get all the music, I should go to a radio station because they have all the records, right? All the promos. They have all the promos. So I should try to get to a radio station so I can get all the records. I should, obviously, I should go into radio. So my dad got this opportunity to host a gospel show on Sundays, and he didn't really tell me that that's what he was doing. And I was like 12 or 13. One Sunday, I said, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm doing this show for this station. I said, oh, can I come? And then I got really into it. He says, okay, but I also wanted my own show. So my dad was basically kind of like, well, you have to like apprentice with me basically and, and host the show with me. And you have to keep the grades up. And then if you do that, then you're able to have your own show. So I did that for nice. about a year. And then when I turned 14, I like asked the, the music director because this was like circa 86, 87. So mm-hmm. my hypothesis was true. They got all the promos. And not only that, that was like actually like a really interesting time because um, that's when all the early Chicago house records were coming out. That's when all the crazy cool R&B yeah. records were coming out. And also mm-hmm. all the yep. early hip hop stuff was coming out and they were getting all the promos. And also, I was like right. learning cool. about trade magazines and like, so they were like, mm-hmm. you know, but because it was an R&B station, I was looking at this idea like, oh, you report to this magazine and you talk to these label reps and things like that. So I was picking and soaking it all up. So yeah. after a year of doing that, they gave me like my own show that I could do. Um, I think I remember if, if it was on Thursdays from four to six and they let me play whatever I wanted. So I was playing like R&B and hip hop and all this sort of stuff. And it became a really popular show. It was like the, the wow. top show on that station for a long time. You know, and I was still young and I didn't tell anybody that that was me. But everybody, oh, yeah. you know, I, I, I remember because it was a college town. So there was like all these like people and I wasn't you know I wasn't even like that good of a DJ it was just more like I was like playing all the <laughs> records that Top 40 wasn't playing at all so everybody yeah. listened to it because like, there wasn't anybody. that's amazing yeah but, um, yeah. but I do remember because I would ride my bike from junior high <laughs> all the way over there and there you know and it was so like cool. out of this house 
I remember getting off my bike and like walking in and there were like these girls who were in their car and they were like in the college or whatever and they were like kind of like poking in they're like and, and I was like what are you doing they're like oh we're just seeing who's DJing we're gonna see who's like because they were trying to figure out who who was who right and they go and they said yeah. who's DJing next and they said it's me and at the time someone had given me because I couldn't come up with a DJ name because they said you can't be Dwayne you have to be something and I'm like what is it and they said you should be the imperial player he was like this cool, old man. school guy so I just used it not knowing that he was like just kind of making fun of me because I was like super awkward and not a player at all. I was just like just <laughs> playing the records. I was playing the records though, right? So yeah. When I walked in the door, he's like they were just kind of staring, and I was like, "What are you doing?" And they're like, "Well, we're we're just waiting to see who's that, you know who's going to be DJing next." I'm like, "That's me." They go, "Who are you?" I'm like, "I'm Imperial Player." They go, "You're him?" <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "And I said, yeah." And they go. Okay, and then they like literally like run, like they like get into their cars and drive away. So they were obviously trying to check me out. What they were like, so I was like this little kid. They were like, "F that." We're like, <laughs> new plan. <laughs> so, well, that's not gonna be that's not gonna be your new boyfriend. So <laughs> a few years, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that that's where that came from. Is like so so yeah. Oh. So I caught like the radio bug like pretty early on. And being that it was a college town, obviously Lincoln is kind of one of several small cities in Mm -hmm. Nebraska, but there's nothing really around it. Was it more impactful that you were there going to New York a few months of the year, but then coming back and kind of like cultivating your own style in this kind of place that you could find your niche rather than competing in, you know, New York? Or do you do you feel like it would have been you know more beneficial for you, you know, in your current career as a DJ to be in New York or you think it, it would have washed out regardless? Uh, I think, you know, in hindsight, probably what I missed was just being was just like the kind of multicultural thing that I think I was like what I, you yeah. know, what I was craving the most in New York wasn't necessarily of course you know it's New York so it's like there's lots of shiny new buildings you know dirty old buildings graffiti you know all sorts of cool things going on but I think Mm -hmm. one of the things that I you know with like a lot of my you know the friends who I made there one of the things that I think I I truly missed growing up was probably just like the whole multicultural aspect I will say that Lincoln had probably a, a more diverse sort of sprinkling of like uh, nationalities here than most. I've made friends who are black and they grew up in the middle of like suburbia and Michigan and things like that where they were like the only black kid for, you know, or one of like half a dozen. That was never my experience. But it was still like a predominantly white town in the middle of Nebraska. And, you know, and I think that a lot of it was like me kind of holding on to like something that was specifically African-American and black and current and, and mine. Yeah. But at the same time, I was really into rock music as well. And Mm. the first sort of crowds that I really connected with was like a bunch of skater kids, a bunch Mm. of theater kids, you know, a bunch of weirdos. So that was like my crew. The great thing about especially like in Lincoln around the, you know, in the 80s and the early 90s was there was a lot of money in the town because like the university's football and basketball teams, they were really good. So there was like a lot of influx of like money. And you know how it is. It's like all of a sudden, like the cultural center or whatever, like all of a sudden, like to be like, oh, we have to book bands because we have 
$250,000 that we got to use up right away. I got the opportunity to see things like, you know, I got to see Pixies and Red Hot Chili Peppers mm. play, you know, in 1990, like right before the, uh, the Doolittle album. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I, my friend snuck me and my other friend in to see Nirvana at Duffy's, which is like, there's like a famous, <laughs> which is like a famous bootleg wow. recording during the incesticide, you know, oh, yeah. and, yeah. you know, and there was like a lot of amazing record stores to go to and bookstores. Oh. And the school that I went to, Lincoln High, was like literally like, you know, it was practically in the middle of the University of Nebraska mm. campus. Oh. So I had a, a, a really cool little, once I was old enough to actually get it, I had a cool little college experience when I was a teenager, you know, from mm-hmm. like 14 yeah. on. I was getting exposed to a lot of really cool bands and ideas and you could kind of fuck up safely there, you know? <laughs> you know, where, you know yeah. the, the stakes weren't necessarily as high because I was probably going to do all those same things in New York that I was going to do in Nebraska. So it was probably safer that I did them here. Yeah. You know, in the end, it's all about a balance. And if you can kind of figure out what that balance is and appreciate, I'm blessed that I was actually able to have enough insight at an early age to kind of figure out that. You know, having lived in a college town, you know, even though it was in my late 20s, it's it's definitely one of those things where it's like this little tiny ball of like culture because there's nothing else around it. So yeah. you get a lot of things and you get like a lot of culture coming through and a lot of bands and a lot of music, but it's just in that little bubble. So, yeah. you know, it's, and Omaha was like literally like, 60 miles away so most of the right. population uh, of the state was like within a 60 mile radius of each other so there was a spot called the ranch bowl that had it was like this teeny bar it's not there anymore unfortunately but it was like this teeny bar on the side of like a bowling alley and they used to have the most incredible shows there hmm. like i saw slow dive and ride there you know mm-hmm. i always say that it changed my dna see that in like this teeny bowling you know and green day like played there during wild dookie was playing you know wild dookie was like i was like kind of eh about that band but then when i but then you know like you can't refute that they're an insanely great live band and i remember seeing Mm -hmm. that seeing them live and being like there's nothing I can say about this. You know, like, you mm-hmm. know, I was like, why are these guys famous? And I'm like, oh, this is why they're famous. You know, <laughs> and why they continue to be famous. Sure. So, yeah. All these years later. I was able to see a lot of really amazing bands. And there was a lot of really cool bands that came up watching all this stuff. You know, I know all those Saddle Creek guys. They're just nice. a little bit younger than me. The Cursive guys. And I kind of came up seeing those kids. Connor Oberst used to like, I remember him like at 14 years old having his acoustic guitar and I kind of screaming his songs in your face, you know, while you're, really? while you're you know, like, like, hey, I got this new song. He's like screaming the song in your face and you're just like, okay, kid, you know, where you at? Don't you have school tomorrow or something, you know? <laughs> but all of that stuff was going on and it was like really cool to be a part of that and to yeah. to have that kind of ground you in, in a lot of awesome way. But also, you know, whenever anybody would talk about things that were going on that were super cool everywhere else, like, you know, yeah, Seattle and this and that, I would be like, Lincoln and Omaha's got some cool shit going on you know yeah. I can say yeah. that you know and they're like oh that can't be and I'm like oh 
you know, and now it's like, now you know. So it was kind of nice to be able to be a part of something that was small and, and cool and exciting. And I, I would have missed out on that if, you know, if yeah, my true. family stayed in New York. And then, so now, Dwayne, did CMJ, we had read that you had worked it. Did oh, yeah. you move back to New York for CMJ or how did that work? Like, how did you get back to New York? Absolutely. Funny story. So I ended up transferring to Hastings College, which is a small liberal arts school in Hastings, Nebraska. Like, I got a speech and debate scholarship. At the time that I went there, that just happened to be like the top five speech and debate team in the country. But yeah, so I went there for that. But also they had a very small communications center that was like basically like a tax write-off from one of Reagan's cronies (laughs) who just threw a bunch of money into doing like a a big communication centers in the center of Nebraska. But what was great about it was, and they still say this about this college is, you can have a lot of hands-on experience there. And they had a small radio station, and I was like, as a sophomore, I was able to, like, take it over. Basically, all my friends took it over. I recruited, like, friends of mine to do, like, a hip-hop show and things like that. And that was, like, in the 90s when, especially with hip-hop, you know, where the only way you could get hip-hop vinyl was if you were, like, on, like, literally promo lists because they weren't printing vinyl at that time. So Mm. all the DJs, if you were a hip-hop DJ, they were like, that was the only way you could get it. So, you know, we Mm -hmm. were getting all of that stuff. Days on the boulevard, I landed. We used to kick routines, and the presence was fitting. It was I, the abstract, and me, the five footer. I kicks the mad style, so step off the Frankfurter. Yo, Fife, you remember that routine that we used to make spiffy like Mr. Clean? Um, um, a tidbit, um, a smidgen. I don't get the message, so you got to <laughs> okay. run the pigeon. You're on point five, all the time, tip. You're on point five, all the time, tip. You're on point five, all the time, tip. I had a broadcast communications major, and I had to have an internship, and I also wanted to spend a summer in New York. We reported to CMJ, and they were looking for interns, and I literally just faxed my resume in. But because I was doing so much, just, I just looked like some sort of superstar, you know? Because <laughs> they were like, totally. Hey. Yeah. This guy's done everything. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So they invited me to become an intern, and, I, and initially I wanted to just... I wanted to write because I have an English degree as well. So at the time, I was like, well, you know, there was more music magazines around. So I was like, oh, well, I'll just go there and write. But when I got there, I did the smart thing. The woman who brought me in, she said, so where do you so what do you want to do when you're here? I found myself saying, where do you need the most help? And she says, I'm glad you asked because we need it. And the music marathon at the time, music marathon was bigger than South by Southwest by a lot by like, you know, and I was like, okay, cool. So when I went downstairs to the office, I was shocked by how small this operation was. We're talking to like two people and one intern, you know, they, they had like the big money things, but also this people were like um, trying to get signed and CMJ and CMJ was like saying like, if you send your demo in, then Mm -hmm. we'll find a spot for you to, to get noticed. They gave me like the grunt work of going through four or five crates of cassette tapes. And there was like literally thousands of them. They were like, my job was basically to go through each one of them and to find, see if there's like a diamond in the rough somewhere or whatever. I was actually able to find two or three bands, I think, that actually ended up being signed. And then also I was able to make an impression very early on. And I was also writing reviews for the magazine. So I was kind of like an all around player. And then at the end of the session, they were like, "Okay, so, you know, we could offer you this job of something. You know, I was like, I can't because I'm a junior. I have to go back to school. (laughs) 
they were like, oh. I said, but I would like to come back and work if you have anything available. And they called me up in March. I think that the publisher's wife called me up in March of 96 and was like, so are you out of school yet? And I was like, no, but I can be. And they were like, great. If you can get here in two weeks. And so luckily I had some pretty um, cool professors because I had already finished Mm. one degree. And so all they had left was like English and the writing and it was all writing classes. And so they saw the opportunity that I, that I was given and they allowed me to like literally fax all of my, you know? (laughs) So I literally like packed up on a Thursday, flew out on a Friday, started work Mm. on a Monday booking for the festival in CMJ 96, flew back to Nebraska to basically pick up my, diploma and then fly back and I just kept them moving from there so I never really had that break after college where you're like oh what do you do whatever it's like I never had it that's probably why I'm like I am the way that I am you know in some ways I still kind of act like I'm in a senior year of college because it's like I'm not because I got I basically got hired doing all the same shit that I was doing when I was you know but it worked out it gave me a a good sort of hard a reality check on how the music industry really worked. And mm-hmm. I was able to kind of figure out that there were certain aspects of it that I didn't really want to be a part of. But luckily, um, that's when Don Sutter Maydell and Lydia Vanderloo, who were the wives and girlfriend of the owners of other music. Because after I, after I oh. left, they were like, what are you going to do now? And I was like, I don't know. You know, I was thinking of maybe going into A&R, but then when I was actually seeing how bands were actually really getting signed and like, I could kind of... get excited of it, probably. Yeah, and I could also see the writing on the wall that the bottom was about to fall out of this because like, mm-hmm. a lot, you know, this is when all the, this is like still like post-Nirvana frenzy, you know? And so I kind of came out of that like going like, what am I going to do next? And they said, well... You should go to other music and apply for a job there. And I did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the rest is, I guess, here. You know, here I am <laughs> on right, Dad's Rock. Right. That was a perfect segue because that was my next question. I was trying to see how did you get from CMJ to other music? Yeah. And I saw, like I said in the intro, I saw the other music doc. I it was laughing when I watched it because Jason Schwartzman had a really funny story about how he walked in for the first time. He was really intimidated. Mm. He had that aura about it, you know, and I had the exact same, the exact same feeling when I walked in. I was like, <laughs> everyone seemed to know everything. I didn't yeah. really know the music that was there. I kind of walked. I pretended to like look at the CDs for a while. <laughs> and I kind of walked out, and then I kind of kicked myself for never really going back too much and like really getting into the whole story. Yeah, you know? I will say that like other music was one of those places where you know I think a lot of customers who they kind of have like a variations on you know on the same story, which is they walk in for the first time and they're like, "Whoa." 
uh, I don't know about all this. And then you're like, yep. I want some help, but I don't know what to say. And I don't want to look like an idiot, you know, exactly. mm-hmm. and we're just kind of, yes. you know, and, yeah. you know, to be honest, most of us were probably hung over, you know, because <laughs> we had been rocking and rolling the night before. Yep. So my job, I think why they hired me was because I'm a pretty affable guy, you know, I hope I don't give off any sort of air of being intimidating as a personality because not at all. And the thing is, is I'm also pretty extrovert in a lot of ways. If I see somebody who's roaming around, you know, like usually what I would do is like if I would see a new customer coming in, they'll kind of circle around for like a two or three minutes, contemplate leaving, come back. (laughs) I would go up to them and I'd say, hey, what's up? Can I help you with anything? And I just start a conversation you know, mm-hmm. we just start talking about music and then we just roll to the sections and we just kind of talk about. And that's generally how it started. To be honest with you, I mean, I didn't really know when I went in, I knew I knew about two or three, two or three things solidly. But because I I chose to kind of approach customers like that, going like, what are you into? What are you into? What do you like? What are this and that? Then if there was something that I wasn't familiar with, I took it upon myself to kind of learn about it Mm, and have an opinion about it. So there was a lot of stuff in there that I loved. There was a lot of stuff in there that I liked. There were a few things in there that I didn't, that weren't necessarily my thing, but I respected it and I knew why people liked it. And I felt Mm -hmm. like I could talk that, you know, talk that talk with them, you know? Mm-hmm. And make it feel like I wasn't being snobbish or, or standoffish or dismissive of, of any of that stuff. Because I felt mm-hmm. like if we carried it in other music, then, you know, I should be able to talk intelligently about it and things like that. Because the idea, because yeah. everybody said other music, we didn't carry anything that we didn't like or wasn't excited about. And that's and that was like 100 percent true. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that we were all like in consensus about what was great. That would have made that a very boring store. But yep. we, you know, we we all had opinions about it. But we also didn't. We weren't like, you know, we didn't think any sort of music was invalid. You know, there wasn't like a lot of people who were like huge fans of certain emo bands or whatever. But we carried it all and we understood why people liked it. We understood what, you know, its role. Yep. And we also knew what made the bands that were better than the rest, what made them stand out. During my tenure at other music, I kind of felt like I was trying to be the antithesis of like that kind of, you know, record clerk. And I feel like a lot of the everybody who worked there was extremely excited about all the music that was there and wanted to talk about. It. That's why you work there. What we we certainly weren't well, getting paid like a fuck ton of money. So we were, <laughs> you know, so we were really excited to like to work there and to talk about music all day. Nobody went out of their way to be like an asshole or anything like that. Yeah. But I think that if you combine the intimidating factor of like all the music in there combined yep. with somebody who might have a hangover and they're like, I like reggae. And you're like, what's good in here? You're like, it's all good. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what's on the shelf is good. Yeah, it's all good. I mean, you know, that's what we do here. Just pick it out. Yeah. You know? totally. <laughs> Give it a spin. Now, well, while you're at other music, were you also DJing like at that time? Yes, or? yes, yeah, I was. That's what actually made me like really good money. So, mm. but I was also like, I, I, I like the balance, you know, because as you, as you can possibly guess by listening to my shows, I'm into a lot of different types of music. I always yes. feel like my interest in a lot of like experimental rock music and jazz and electronic music and stuff like that informs the music that I'm, you know, that I'm kind of 
primarily known for DJing out, which is like the disco and the funk and all like that. Well, speaking about your show, your radio show that you do now, how did you get to FMU and how do you put your show together? How do you think about threads and themes and and all that good stuff? Uh, To answer the first question, I got asked to be on WFMU for a long time, like working at other music. Um, I got to know a lot of uh, the DJs pretty cool. well. Like Gaylor Fields used to go shopping there all the time. Trouble. Nice. I mean, like I shouldn't even really name any names because they all went there. And this, and this, <laughs> and this, this podcast, it might feel bad. You know, there's a DJ Small Change. He was the one who specifically asked me to guest on his show. And so I was a guest on his Nickel and Dime radio, nice. like way back in the 90s. And then working at other music. Brian Turner, the music director, asked me way back in the early 2000s if I wanted a a show. But at the time, I was like, I can't really I didn't really have the time because my DJ career at that point was like pretty popping, especially locally. Mm -hmm. And I was also Mm -hmm. like getting into production and then learning production, you know, and I was in a collective. So I was like basically tapped out. I was like, I don't have time for it. But, Mm -hmm. you know, but I was also like showing up sporadically on people's programs. Trouble had me as a guest. Uh, Small Change, of course, had me as a guest many times and stuff like that. So I was always on the radar. And then I guess 2012 or 2013, my schedule kind of opened up just a little bit for me to be able to like have a show. But I said, I can't do it on the weekends because they were thinking like, uh, yeah, you can just DJ on the week. We know we need a weekend show. I said I can only do it during the weekend. So they gave me Wednesday from noon to three, which was actually not it wasn't like a very popular um, mm-hmm. because before I took it over, Kenny G had it. Who's just a, an amazing genius, cracked out weirdo who is a poet laureate now. <laughs> but um, but it was mm-hmm. like this six hour power hour of madness. You know, Ken <laughs> Friedman, Kenny G and then Irwin Chusid. It's like nine hours of just mad, you know, classic sort of WFM, you know, so. When I came in, I was none of these things. So I kind of had to like, and it took me a minute to kind of figure out what it is I wanted to do. But Mm -hmm. once I actually decided that I was just going to do like a soul disco show, midday Wednesday, I just kind of embraced it and kind of went with it. In terms of like the threads and putting the shows together, it's all pretty intuitive at this point, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Like I said before, um, I feel like probably my gift and curse is I kind of have a photographic memory when it comes to music and like kind of connecting things. So, and I also do a lot of like research on things. So, you know, so I can be like, oh, this is like sampled by this, and this guy did this, and this, and that guy played played on that, and whatever. And then because I I have such a a long history of DJing, I know how to like make, not necessarily beat matching transitions all the time, especially with radio. I like how Giles Peterson does it, where he kind of picks and chooses when he wants to mix and when he doesn't. And I think that's cool Mm -hmm. because it just opens up the possibilities of radio and like radio is the theater of the mind, right? So it's great when you're able to just kind of present music kind of like on its own. I get inspired by brand new music. 
And I'm lucky that at this point, I'm always seeking out new music, but I also have a lot of, because of all the, I've been doing the show for so long. Friends and, and, and friends people. And friends, yeah, and industry people who send me stuff. So I'm always Sweet. looking. So I guess like these days, before any Dwayne train, I like try to find like at least two or three songs that I've discovered that week that are brand new, that are really, really inspire me. You know, I kind of look at it as like paints, you know, it's like shades and then I just let it, let my mind kind of go and I kind of build the show around those around those mm-hmm. three things. And usually those songs are the ones that people, you know, later on become like Dwayne Train sort of hits where people are like, dude, uh, I heard this, this song I heard on there and it just blew my mind and, uh, and it's brand new. And what I'm doing is I'm basically manipulating you by opening up. I like I basically kind of like take, mm-hmm. instead of like, you know, being that guy ranting about how great this song is, I can just show you and just be like, instead of being like, yeah, man, it has a little bit of Sly and the Family Stone. It has a little bit of this. And then you hear the sense line from Chicago. You know, it's less annoying when I'm just playing you all the music that surrounds it. makes it. perfect sense. So, yeah. Uh, to switch gears and to, you know, just Get, for most of our guests who are fathers, we you know we have to ask the, the fatherhood question. As we said in the top of the show, you post a lot of pictures of your son who you have hashtag as Boogie Grams, um, which is one of the reasons why we wanted you on the show. You know, obviously you're a devoted father and your son is an incredibly important part of your life. Yeah. Did you always want to be a father? Was that something that you were aspiring to be, you know, obviously? Or was that just something that, you know, kind of happened and you're like, it just, you know, kind of went with that? Um, I was never aspiring to be a dad, but it was also one of those things where I wasn't trying not to be a dad, you know? Mm-hmm. I think at that point of my life when, uh, well, Boogie Grams is like his nickname is Boogie because we didn't know, you know, when, when he was in the womb. We decided we were, we were right. going to keep the gender a surprise and... So nice. Boogie became his nickname. <laughs> and so all of our friends and family just started calling the baby Boogie. And then when he was born, we just stuck, you know. But Alton is his name. And so I wasn't necessarily aspiring, but, you know, it's one of those things where my wife and I got engaged. And right around the time that we announced the engagement, you know, we got pregnant. It was a surprise. But it wasn't anything that was like, you know, it was like one of those things yeah. where like, oh, well, I guess this is happening now, you know. Yeah. But I'm mm-hmm. just really, really blessed and happy that my wife and I get along. We're on the same mm-hmm. level. It's like we just don't want to. We have this attitude. But we just don't want to stress each other out. You know, we're mm-hmm. like kind of these people oh. who are like we both have been in relationships in the past where, you know, it was like super argumentative. And, the, you know, we're not argumentative people. We're very stubborn in a lot of ways and kind of but we don't resolve things by screaming at each other and things like that so i'm definitely one of those people who kind of feels like there's no reason and also i guess i'm just a little older it's like there's no reason for you to change your whole life to fit this thing of like oh well i gotta change certain things because now i'm a dad and i gotta you know i gotta wear suits and ties and find like a you know because it's like that's not really going to work because that's not me. Um, yep. That's not how I've lived my life. That's not how I've made my money. That's not how I find happiness. So uh, I feel that once Boogie was born, then I just kind of incorporated him into my life. During like the lockdown when we were doing shows from my home, I'm basically doing DJing in his house that he can't leave either. And he's really into music. He's seeing like the microphone. Why wouldn't he want to go and be a part of this? This looks cool. So I just started like letting him, I was just very honest about it. You know, like he would get on the mic during my show and sometimes ask the the guest questions. And, you know, in some ways that 
is a very sort of honest it, it keeps me sane and it keeps me from like you know it, it's like we all have doubts about if we're like doing the right thing or we good dad or bad dad but I think that you know right. it, the, the more honest you are with yourself about where you are in terms of fatherhood and and whatever then the more secure I feel and it is what it is. We're at the park. Yeah. He's like dancing around. <laughs> He's on, you know, exactly. like we're doing an interview right, right. now. He might bust yeah. right in here and who, you know, what? It'd be perfect. It'd you be know? perfect. And has the last year and a half has been crazy for everybody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being a father, uh, you know, who's, who's black with a black son was the last year. Did you feel like you had to take on some extra responsibility the last year or did anything change in how you you viewed parenting or did you, it's just one of these things where, did you feel like the last year was extremely stressful for you as a father? It was extremely stressful for me. It's just scary to think that you can't take your three-year-old. We live right across the street from like a park and we're walking and they're like, you know, roping off the playground and yellow tape. And of course he wants to go and he can't, you know, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, In terms of like raising a black child, a black son in America. I'm lucky in the sense that like my parents uh, both were in my life and they were both pretty um, radical thinkers and they didn't really sugarcoat uh, a lot of the world from me and what what it is, you know, especially as a black male, what I was going to have to deal with throughout my life. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like something to be angry about. It was just like, yo, this is, this is the real deal. This is what, this is what this shit really looks like. And this is how the media portrays you. And this is how the Mm -hmm. rest of the world, you know, it sucks, but this is it. And that's why we're stressing these things and like the education and whatever. Not because to be like a, a stand-up citizen or whatever. It's just like right. you're going to need to keep your mind as sharp as possible to be able to like navigate this world. And the way that I think about it with my son is I feel like all of us as parents in this life, we are supposed, you know, like we said before, this is a marathon. More, more than likely, what it really is is like a relay race. So yeah. while we're here, we're like basically kind of like running as fast as we can with the <laughs> idea that, you know, we're trying to get as much of a leg up so that when we pass the baton to yeah. the next person, the next generation, my son, and say like, all right, I'm going to let you go. I gave you as much of a head start as possible. So here it is. That's my attitude about about the whole thing. I want him to just at this point in his life, feel secure in who he is, feel secure in who his family is, who his parents are, be raised in a community where he gets daily affirmations, not from us, but from the, the people around him who look like him and also who don't look like him, you know, mm-hmm. and feel comfortable in that he's feeling free enough because he has a solid foundation and a solid mm-hmm. emotional foundation. If anything, you know, what's happened in the last year and a half isn't necessarily, you know, in terms of like what's basically been exposed to the rest of the world is is like a, a struggle that's been going on for years and years yeah. and years. This is not anything that's new. These are all things that yeah. yep. what we're talking about in public and CNN and like all these blogs, you know, these are all things that were discussed in my parents' house all the time. Mm-hmm. To me, it's kind of like, I wouldn't say business as usual, but if anything, then it's just like, it just kind of solidifies to me what it is mm-hmm. that I need to do for him. And yeah. thank God that I had my father as a role model and my mother yeah. who were able to kind of give me a really solid blueprint of how to 
navigate this so it doesn't feel overwhelming. He's got a lot of complexities that I don't really know how to walk him through because he is a biracial kid who has Caribbean, Mexican, Irish, Mm. and uh, black Southern roots in him, you know, who has family in Mexico, in the UK, in Wales, in America, you know, down South, Washington State. He could literally go anywhere. He could go all of these places and find family members, you know, Mm -hmm. who know him, who know of Mm -hmm. him. You know, he has an Irish cousin right now, his second cousin in Ireland, who looks like a goddamn spitting image of him. And they've never (laughs) met before. If they walk down the street, you think that they were brothers until they would start talking. And one's got a British accent. My son's got whatever, you know. So he's got a lot to navigate. That's my job as a dad right now. Mm -hmm. All the other stuff about being black and things like that, that other shit is like, that's his own journey. I think that was the best um fatherhood slash parenting breakdown description that we've had on yeah. the show yet. So <laughs> congratulations. Oh, yeah, seriously. <laughs> yes. The, the, that was excellent. The, the re, you can, you can buy race, my uh, book in 2023. <laughs> I know, seriously. <laughs> Perfect metaphor. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Parenting Dwayne training. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I saw this is switch gears, but just uh, kind of talk about what you're doing now. I saw you've been DJing at uh, Jupiter Disco in Bushwick and just some other stuff you're working on. I have a collective called Negro Clash, which is uh, basically like it was started in 2001 and it was like a party started with my colleagues, Prince Language and Lindsay Caldwell. And our whole mission, especially at that time, was just to celebrate the history of... uh, Black excellence in electronic music. How that party came about was because, like, during that time, that's when all the Electro Clash parties were huge in New York. It was this idea of, like, there was this kind of societal whitewashing of how electronic music was presented, and we kind of felt like, if you call yourself Electro Clash, then why are you not playing African Bambada? Why are you not playing Cybertron and things like that? And there was like a bunch of like kids dancing to like Lady Tron and things like, which is nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. I actually, funny enough, I actually dated like the sister of one of the members of Lady Tron for a long time. So there's nothing, <laughs> so if they're listening right now, I have no problem with Lady Tron at all. But they were good. We were, yeah, yeah, they, they were good, good at what they did. But it was like electro pop and, and you yeah. know, and it was like very coming up from a very human yeah. league, new wave sort of a thing. So we felt like yep. there was an opportunity there to kind of like, present our idea of what that music truly represented and play it for a downtown crowd. We did that party regularly for about four and a half, five years. And then since then, we've always done reunions and things like that. And then last year was the first time since we started that party in 2001 that we were going to do a monthly residency. And we started it at Jupiter Disco, but then COVID started, so we were only able to do it one time, one month. But then uh, now oh. that it's lifted, we've started doing the Negro Clash party the second Friday of every month now, starting last month. We had a great reopening night, and so we do that the second Friday of every month. I have a production team crew called Devin Dare with the brilliant Sean Raquan. Look him up. 
Google him. He was in Phenomenal Hand Clap Band and engineered some oh, fantastic. Dude. Yeah, he remastered and re-engineered. I don't know if you know about the Universal Togetherness Band record that came out in Numero Group. You should check it out. Fantastic it out. record. Yeah. But genius engineer, producer. We have a production team called Devin Dare. So we have uh, some stuff coming out. We just did a remix for this Manchester, UK soul band called Secret Night Gang that's signed to Giles Peterson's label Brownswood. So we did a remix for them that comes out, I think, in the fall. We have another 12-inch coming out in the fall. The world is opening up, and I've got a lot of uh, bills to pay. So we're back to DJing. <laughs> it's great. It's great. I'm, I'm happy to be doing it and you know, feel blessed. Hopefully things keep turning for the better you know, for everybody. Cool. As long as we're on the up and up, I'll be out there DJing safely for all Amazing. y'all. Okay, last uh, last question. We usually end each episode with our music picks. So if you can name like maybe three tracks or bands or albums that you're spinning lately that you, that you like. That's- uh, the three records that totally knocked me out, I guess, the last couple months. Um, there's a hip-hop soul artist from New York by the name of Yaya Bay, and she has uh, a couple of albums out that are incredible. She had one out called The Madison Tapes that's on her band camp, and then she has a new EP out on Big Dada called The Things I Can't Take With Me. There's nowhere to hide, I see you. No matter where you go, you're still you. Hit Texas for a few, damn, you still blue. You thought I ain't no nigga, I've been new Damn If it's me or her, yeah If you don't feel you I like to think of her as like a more focused Lauryn Hill unplugged era type, you know? Interesting, okay. And then I like, of course, everybody's wow group, it should be a wow group, is uh, Salt. Yes. The new album Nine is like yep. just as good Amazing. as the last three records that they put out. They just continue Unreal. to they just continue to just inspire just great stuff. And um, I'll say, oh, Vanilla is this incredible, you know, kind of mysterious. I think Hugo Harrison is his name, but he makes probably the best sort of like post Dilla shadow down tempo instrumental records. Super lush, super expressive. Mm. He has been putting out uh, solo records on his own since, uh, oh God, since the early 2000s. But he has a new record called Into the Dream, which is like literally like, it's like a hip hop lullaby to me. It's just so good. So those are those are my three picks. 
and it's all awesome. independent stuff that you can go on Bandcamp and and buy. Perfect. We're huge, huge Bandcamp uh, nerds too. And the soundtrack to the other music documentary is actually fantastic too. Oh, cool. yeah. It's a compilation of uh, a best of live performances, and they're all okay. uh, performances from in stores, from people who perform live in the store. Cool. So, nice. yeah. So, Jeff Magnum performing Two Headed Dog acoustically like six months before that album came out. Yola Tingo, yeah. Animal Collective, uh, I believe Beans from Annie Pops on there. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, it came out for Record Store Day, so it's totally, like, dad rock nerd, nerdy type. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, those are my picks. Big shouts out to Paloma Basu and Rob Hatchmiller, who directed other music, too. They did a fantastic job. Yes. All right. Well, thank you for, yeah, thanks. This was was super fun. Yeah, Yeah, Dwayne, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. We all, this this was fantastic. You're amazing, Um, Yeah. You have stories, stories for, for days. Endless stories. That now, now I have like a million more things I got to ask you, but yeah, and I just love that you're, part two. You've just done so much too. You're just so varied and and you're open. Like you're open to just trying whatever. Like I love that. Yeah, I mean that's like I mean I don't really know any other way to live. One of the things that whenever I feel really really stressed out about some of the my professional life decisions, then I remind myself that I spent my whole professional life getting paid to do something that I love and that is something Absolutely. that 95% of the world has never ever experienced so you know, if anything I hope that my son kind of picks that up and understands that you know when he thinks about living your dreams or whatever it's kind of like thinking like it could be something as simple as just you know figuring out what it is that you love and then devoting your life to making a living doing that and mm-hmm. taking the good and bad that comes along with it Now, as we do every episode or mostly every episode, we're going to now talk about some music we've been listening to lately that we want to inform everyone about and hopefully get you all listening to. So, Joe, why don't you go first? What have you been digging lately? There's been a lot of great music in 2021. I think it's actually been one of the best music years for me, just from a, you know, a music fan point of view. So far, yeah. I think also I've been listening to a lot more new music than I did especially in years past. So it was hard to actually pick. I was going through my my radio show recent playlist earlier today. And the first song I want to talk about is a band called Goat that I stumbled upon, I think, through Spotify, one of the psych rock playlists I was listening to. I heard a couple of their songs a few months ago, some of their older songs. They came out about a decade ago. And when I looked into them, their backstory is pretty interesting. They're a mysterious Swedish collective. They're, they're, <laughs> they go by that no one knows any of the identities of the of the band members. In all their pictures, the few pictures of them, they're wearing masks and kind of costumes and stuff. But they play this really awesome 70s psych rock, also mixing in like Afro rhythms and Ethiopian jazz and stuff like that. It's kind of a mix of blues stuff. And they have a new compilation out uh, with some new songs. And the song I wanted to talk about is called Queen of the Underground.
compilation is called uh, Head Soup, and it's already sold out on Bandcamp. A lot of their stuff sells out really fast. I was nice. actually trying to find it online. I think Rough Trade has a few copies, but it's really cool. Really rocks. I actually started my my uh, recent mm-hmm. radio show really with good. this track. It's really cool stuff. Cool. Second track I also played on my radio show on Sunday. It's from Margot Price. It's a brand new cover she did of a Rocky Erickson song called Red Temple Prayer, quote, Two-Headed Dog. heard that song before it's from a brand new tribute album which just dropped i think it dropped on record store day actually Mm. it's called uh, may the circle remain unbroken a tribute to rocky erickson featuring jeff tweedy nico case ty siegel gary clark jr lucinda williams so it's pretty awesome cast of uh, characters yeah and i heard some of the other songs earlier today i was walking my dog i heard um the lucinda williams cover of uh you're gonna miss me which was from the 13th floor elevators, which Rocky was the was like the leader of. Mm. And it's out on Light in the Attic Records. He's one of those guys that I always heard about. Um, he's kind of like one of those hipster, I feel like like favorites for blogs, like Aquarium Drunkard or like Brooklyn Vegan. Is like it Rocky or Rocky? Oh, I, I always I always say I always call it said Rocky. It could be Rocky. I don't know. Let's see. Let's Google it. I, I think it might be Rocky Erickson. Rocky. But. I always said Ro- I always said Rocky, but it's like yeah, R O K Y. So I might be right. saying it totally wrong. It is Rocky. So okay. if we put Damn you. So if Jay, if Jay, if Jay you're listening, Rocky. fact man is fact wrong man. <laughs> I think we're gonna keep but that I, I in. I asked. I didn't say it was or not. I said is it. We have a way of saying it. I'm like I don't know. Maybe I maybe I am saying I, it wrong. I don't know him very yeah. well, so I was like I don't know. But yeah, he just was one of those guys. I know like 13th floor elevators song you're gonna miss me is like a garage rock you know staple it's on nuggets he had a lot of mental problems i think he was in jail in the 70s he had this like sort of crazy past that he was kind of haunted i think the rest of his years but Hmm. people always like talked really highly of him so i really i'm thinking about actually getting the whole album some of the other songs were good but that margot price one really rocks and my third pick is another song I've been spinning a lot on my radio show. It's one of my songs of the summer, actually. It's from Shannon and the Clams. It's Year of the Spider. the title track from their uh, brand new album which comes out August 20th out on Dan Auerbach's label Easy Eye Sound 
And they're cool. They're very, they're like yep. a throwback 60s garage rock mixed with doo-wop, R&B, a little like surf vibe. Their singer is Shannon Shaw, who had a solo record that Dan Auerbach produced a few years ago. That was really good. She has got a really big voice. And um, it's just really cool. I haven't heard any of the other tracks from the album yet, but that song's super catchy. They're going to be in our area in October at Webster Hall. I'm kind of circling on my calendar, maybe as a, as a concert to go to. But uh, yeah, check it out. Year of the Spider, Shannon and the Clams. Yeah, they got like a Detroit Cobras kind of vibe, which I really like. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, very cool. And Steve, what have you been listening to lately? <laughs> I've been watching a lot of these live sessions because there has been, you know, just the recent announcement of live music. So we jumped on tickets to see the OCs at uh, the Warsaw. And so I was like kind of getting myself psyched. And so I watched the Big Sur show that Joe had raved about. And then I saw the first levitation session. And then recently I'd seen the second one. And I mean, a lot can be said about just in general, the levitation festival or whoever runs that project because they use really high quality videographers. They audio mix it like super well. Everyone has been like kind of shot, I think, across the planet essentially, but it still kind of has this like cohesive look or cohesive vibe to it. And the freaking, I mean, the bands they're choosing are amazing, obviously. Not only was it OCs and Slift, Buzz, recently Ty Siegel and the Freedom Band, yeah. but also Frankie and the Witchfingers. There's a couple of bands I never heard of called like Acid Dad, Joe was telling me about. So it's like, in the same world of the rock that I'm, you know, really getting into right now, which I already kind of had the King Gizzard back end that's kind of tied to this kind of genre. Yeah, so this uh, song is Snicker C from Levitation Sessions 2 by the OCs. I just, again, like can't say enough about their live performances. I had also recently seen their live at Red Rock set. And it's just cool to see the double drummers. That song yeah, is- and I'm uh, surprised I was never a double drummer guy. No. I never thought I was, but it just oh, works I love double drummers. Yeah. It just it works. It totally works. And they're just- And they play well Dwyer, together. The double drummers, bass player, and someone in the back doing kind of keyboards, kind yeah. of sound effects, and that's it. And they just- they the whale. Whale, and they just blast through these songs. Mm -hmm. They're so tight, so tight. They're yep. so good. Yeah, Dwyer to me too is is really impressing me as a front man. Like it's it's cool to see him. He kind of has used to playing, I think, DIY venues. Sometimes I'll see him like mm -hmm. talk to the audio person or kind of like make eye movements and point and stuff. But like he totally flows with it. Well, wow. like he's just tour. I don't know what you want to call that. Like tour hardened, I guess. He just has that, like, I don't know. It's, it's awesome. And then uh, my second song, everything that's been coming out of UK, there's been a ton of buzz about this album. And I was not as high on the first album by Black Midi. I loved it, but it wasn't, I think it's called Schlagenheim, but I wasn't as blown away as it, the other people were. But everybody has been talking about the newest album, Cavalcade. And this song is called John L.
sonny boy, backed only by accordion. Three rows of pale brunettes protect him from the crowd. And a curtain is a patchwork of imitation vermilion. And a red bar hangs over the throne that has been found. I just gotta say that for some weird reason, I mean, Black Country New Road, a lot of music critics have already been like saying, album of the year, that album is album of the year. And then Squid came. And their album, I was even saying, is an album of the year contender for sure. And I think both of them can like make that case. But this Black MIDI album, man, I listened to it. It's very, they, they expanded their sound too. I feel like every band in the UK is kind of incorporating like post-rock or like this. Yeah, big time. Yeah, you atmosphere. said this earlier. I heard the first track. It was different. Mm-hmm. I, have to, I have to sit with it for a little bit. It's, but. Is some it, parts is the of guy it from Ireland or something, the singer? Maybe. I think he's he had from a really yeah. thick accent. He did. Irish and accent. it's not what you'd expect again from the UK rock scene. Mm. It's a little bit different. Some parts even have avant-garde jazz or like interesting. I, yeah. I just highly recommend it. It I'm not sure if it's gonna outpace Squid for me, but then I don't know. I'm really impressed with the very the variety of the album in general. It's just it's it's it definitely is making waves for sure. And then last choice is uh, going back to the the vinyl collection. I had recently still have been trying to like, I guess, fill out my Detroit and Ohio garage rock set essentially. And so this one uh, is kind of a tough record to find. It was the Greenhorn self-titled album. And the song is called Stay Away Girl. And essentially, I mean, everybody, that, especially you guys included, is super familiar with Patrick Keeler and Jack Lawrence from the Tours, you know, the rhythm mm-hmm. section. And obviously this is, and Josh, you got to see them, you know, earlier. Twice, on. yeah. Yeah, probably with twice. That. Yeah. To me, this song, it definitely, like, you can hear how Craig's, Craig Fox's vocals are very Eric Burden-like. But in like a great, you know what I mean? Like it's well, not. Well, you, you know they they put out they did a an EP. It was on a either Black Friday or Record Store Day, like in 2014 and 2015. Yeah. EP which I have with Eric Burden. Yeah, it's exactly. Eric Burden and the Greenhorn, which and it's makes like, total sense. Yeah, because great. It, it it they could fill in for the animals any day. You know what I mean? And like that to me is a, a huge compliment that Burden would even record with them, right, or play with them. Yeah. So yeah, it, this song just has that like super almost like groovy organ bluesy vibe and also shout out to brian olive who he added a lot of depth on that whole album with guest vocals he's the the guy that eventually moved on to the soledad brothers but he would play like some horns and stuff too i don't know just great album front to back and i think that they should get more love you know i think i mean the whole thing is with them it's like you know the only reason i knew about them was because of uh, the rack and tours. I you know mm, got yeah. in, in, into that into them, um, and then I bought their like you know the the best of stuff, which kind of takes I think through you know them being a, a four or five piece, mm-hmm. and then you know through their their early years, and then you know they 
their 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 last album, which happened a few years after the second Rack and Tours album, which is just called Four Stars. It's just like four stars. It's just them back to being a, technically a three piece, though they do have the keyboardist. I forget his name who who toured with the Rack and Tours. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so the guy who played, you know, uh, keyboards and and did some trumpet stuff on uh, with the the Rack and Tours when they were touring. Um, I don't know if he was with them because I didn't see them in last year. Uh, oh, did Dean? they? Did, mm-hmm. Or two years ago, I guess. D- now it's uh, 2019. When they I know, right? Maybe. Yeah, it might be him. I'm not sure. Anyway, but there was definitely, you know, there. If you like garage rock and you love that Farfisa like organ garage rock type stuff. They're just a great band. I mean, yep. if you listen to the Rack and Tours, you already know that they have a great rhythm section between Jack and Patrick. Yep. And yep. like the the songs are nothing like super amazing, but they're just good garage rock. And yes. and they're if you see them live, they're they're great live. I got to see them twice on the same tour back in uh, 2011. Nice. And it's just they're they're. I, I mean, I don't know if they're ever going to play again, but definitely at least check them out. You know, check out this song and and check out their stuff it's it's absolutely fantastic what i've been listening to uh, lately i've actually you know i was going to be brutally honest i haven't been listening to too much music uh i've been having these long commutes so i've been actually listening to an audiobook lately um if you if you're into fantasy uh the stormlight series uh Mm. by brandon sanderson it's a five book epic i'm on book two great great stuff about 48 hours like each book it's crazy but anyway we were talking about doing picks uh when we were recording the steve gorman episode and i had stumbled upon at that time you know back in the spring this artist who now everyone knows and knew before i did olivia rodrigo who is probably the biggest thing in pop music now at the time when her album sour dropped spotify had an ad and i just like i looked at the cover and i was like this looks interesting i don't know who this person is i clicked on it and the first track called brutal came on and i was like oh my god this is this is awesome if someone tells me one more time enjoy your youth i'm gonna cry and i don't stick up for myself i'm anxious and nothing can help and i wish i'd done this before and i wish people liked me more here it's just this emotional kind of roller coaster mm-hmm. rocking like hard edge song with a lot of like energy and a like punk teenage emotion mm-hmm. i was like this is amazing and then of course i listened to the rest of the stuff and it's more like poppy and everything like that but still that that one song you know it just shows and then reading you know interviews with her and you know articles about her like she really is like a a big rock Really music is. fan. She, is. she really knows her stuff. She's a huge and Jack White fan. Huge Jack White fan. Huge, huge points for huge that. Huge points right there. Yeah. There was a whole thing. Joe, you sent us, us an article or mentioned something about like how Hole was, oh, right. was pissed off. Well, yeah, there's her. sort of controversy that, that's been happening. Yeah, she had this picture. Uh, I don't know where the picture is from. It's from her single or something of, mm. of like a prom prom picture yeah. kind of gone wrong with like the mascara, right? you know, and stuff. And that's sort of a take on the whole cover and she's like i did it as like an homage they were just talking about this on um i think it was on sirius and uh courtney love didn't take it as that she could have easily just been like thanks cool Mm -hmm. that you you know giving it like a nod but he she like totally flipped out and then here's where you can send the flowers commented like i'm sorry no i like your band like right so yeah 
you know, but anyway, you know, I know that she's the biggest thing in pop music and I'm sure anyone who's listening to this, who has listened to any pop radio has heard, you know, her song driver's license or anything else by her. Um, if they have kids, they probably, you know, love high school musical, the musical series or whatever she's on. And I mean, honestly, like she's very impressive. And I, if you haven't heard this song, at least check this song out. It's like a two minute, just like hard edge, just rock song. It's great. My, my 10 year old daughter, one of her recent soccer tournaments, we had a long break and one of the moms put on a, you know, a Bluetooth speaker and the entire time of this break, like hour long break was all Olivia Rodrigo. And the Mm. girls were just screaming the lyrics to every song, including brutal, and wow. some other ones. The hate right now is good for you, which is I hear it all the time. I kind of flick mm-hmm. by the pop station on Sirius, and it is really good. It has it's like half rock and then half kind yeah. of moody pop, but it is it, just like you said. It's really cool that she's promoting rock. She doesn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. Almost yeah, no other absolutely. pop star like Ariana Grande. They don't. She doesn't talk about Jack White and like yeah. Olivia Rodrigo it's, had a whole MTV thing, like a ten minute mm-hmm, clip. Yeah. You can see. I, I don't know if we talked uh, about, about the I, White Stripes. Yeah, about like and she's deep only, cuts and she's and only stuff. eighteen. Only eighteen. She's only 18. Yeah, yeah. Yep. It's cool. So, you know, big props to her. Another album that I was really listening to uh, before I started this, you know, audiobook that I've been listening to is a new Saint Vincent album, Very Daddy's cool. Home. I've been a fan of hers. I've never been like a huge fan. Like I, I, you know, her album with David Byrne is amazing. You know, her other albums have been great and I've listened to them on and off. This is like the first album in a very long time I've sat down and listened to. And I listened to it a few times through and it's fantastic. It's like a seventies throwback, like this sleazy funk stuff that is, is great, but it still has her, you know, hard edge, her amazing guitar work in there. And, you know, at first when I saw the performances on SNL of the first two singles, you know, I was like, "Mm, I don't even know what they're singing about. Like, this is like, it's cool, but I I don't even know what's going on in the song. And once I listened to the album, though, it was great. She's always going to all these new directions and... The Jack one Antonoff song, produced it, right? I think. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. so. He like I mean, co-wrote he, some of it or he's something. He's definitely involved, too, heavily involved. He's very, yeah. very involved. He's got his hands on everything yeah. now, which is, is fine. He's a pop genius. And, you know. Um, it's an interesting backstory, too, with the album because it's about his, her dad was in prison. Yeah. For 10 yeah, years or something. A, if you listen to Mark Marin, you know, yeah. if you have the premium or if you have a way to listen to the episode, listen to the, his episode with her. It's really good. Yeah. And, you know, it sheds a lot of light about her as a musician and a person and really what she went through to, to become who she is. And I got to see her live uh, when she opened for My Morning Jacket at WXPN Exponential Festival in like 2015. And she was great, she was amazing. Like I didn't even know most of her stuff at the time, but she just blew my mind of like her presence. But anyway, the song from Daddy's Home that I love a lot is the song Down. I was like doing the dishes and then like I mindlessly started dancing to it. It was just one of those tracks. It's got a really cool groove to it. You know, as someone like me who loves funk music, it was just like, this is this is really great. The other thing I really love about the album is that it has an electric sitar on it. Wow. Like every song has an electric sitar. For me, it's, it's funny. It's kind of like an inside joke because uh, my band, The Cheap Moves, when we put out a demo 
back in 2007, 2006, the guy we're recording with had an electric sitar and he said, oh, let's try this on one of the tracks. And we ended up on like one of the songs. So it's just like one of these things where it's like, it's cool to hear it. And then my last pick is uh, a band I had literally never heard of. Uh, I know, Joe, you've heard of, of them before, but I never heard about them until I read an article uh, that was posted by Neil Francis, again, mentioned on almost every episode of, of this show. <laughs> and big congrats to him on getting signed to, to ATO Records. Yes. Looking forward yeah, to the, the new- uh, So, so, so huge congrats. The new record. But anyway, he posted an article uh, from a local Chicago publication about local Chicago bands playing at Lollapalooza this year. And I was going through them, checking out some of the stuff. And this one band called Rookie was listed. And so I was reading it and like, I looked at the picture and I was like, oh, these guys just look like a bunch of hipsters, like, you know, it's whatever. But it said, this is Chicago's new classic rock style band or whatever. So I just gave it a spin and it's phenomenal. Their album, which is just a self-titled album called Rookie that came out last year is just amazing. Like for me, it's nothing really mind blowing, but it's a really, really good album. Like if you like 70s classic rock, like power pop, like Cheap Trick, Big Star, like the, these are bands that they list, but like they would fit right in the Days of Confused nice. soundtrack. Mm. Uh, especially the first song, which I wanted to mention called Hold On Tight. It's just like, it's so catchy. It's got really cool guitar work. It's it's just like, you know, the big power chords in the beginning. And it's just a super fun album. The whole album is great. It's just a super fun album. Uh, I'm probably gonna buy it on vinyl uh, at the next Bandcamp Friday because they still have it listed. So I am, you know, definitely gonna buy it and start you know, listening to them because if this is, their sound, it's definitely a sound I love to hear and to hear it from, you know, uh, a new band and hear, you know, their take on, on that style of music is, is great. So I, I played them. The only song I knew of them was last year. I played their cover of Head Over Heels. The, uh, yeah, Tears I for that. that was great, too. Yeah. yeah, it's an excellent cover. I just stumbled upon it on Bandcamp. I think it was through Bandcamp or maybe FMU or something. And it was on this compilation from the Chicago record label. They were celebrating, I think, 20th year anniversary or 25 year anniversary. It's like this long compilation. It's just one of the tracks on it. And I kept playing it, but I never checked out their, I don't know if I ever checked out their own music, but it sounds great. I, I now yeah. really have to listen to it. Definitely. It's uh, really cool stuff. everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and special thanks to Dwayne Harriet for coming on the show. He was an absolute blast to talk to and we hope to have him back on the pod later in the year. Do yourself a favor, listen to Dwayne's show, The Dwayne Train, every Wednesday at noon by tuning into WFMU 
at WFMU.org. Or if you're in the New York City area, turn your radio dial to 91.1 FM or 91.9 FM. You can also follow Dwayne on Instagram at Dwayneyak77 and on Twitter at Dwayne DJ. We want to give a big thank you and shout out to everyone who's been listening yes. to the last few episodes. Thank especially you so much, everyone. The last two, most specifically the last episode, our one year anniversary with our interview with Steve Gorman. The amount of listens that we've gotten has blown our brains. Mm -hmm. Again, thank you for for listening. Thank you for giving us a, a, a shot. Hopefully you're a repeat listener. Um, but if you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends, your fellow music-loving dads, your fellow music-loving moms, or just, again, anyone that you know to check it out. And if you like or even love the podcast, please go ahead and give us an honest review. We really appreciate them. And they're informative to us and tell us what you all are really thinking. Um, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter, both at Dad Rocks Pod, and also on Facebook by searching up Dad Rocks! Exclamation point. If you have any questions, comments, or any show ideas for us, or you just want to give us a shout, you can always email us at dadrockspod at gmail.com. This episode, we will have a Spotify playlist of all the music that you've heard on here, or at least most of it, whatever we can find on Spotify. Um, and that link should be inside the description of the podcast. Thanks again for listening. And remember, dads, you rock. <laughs>